This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the fact that you have given us your Holy Spirit who enables us to understand your word, that under his filling ministry and teaching ministry, we are able to assimilate this doctrine into our soul and that we are able to live a life that is consistent with your plan and purposes, that we may honor and glorify you in our lives and before the angels. Father, at this time we pray for our nation. We continue to pray for our president, for those leaders uh, in Congress, others, uh, civilian leadership as well as uh, military leadership. They, they may have the wisdom, the skill, the insight to properly interpret the intelligence uh, data that they receive and that through them you would work to keep our nation secure. We pray that you would foil the plots of the enemy. For there are many who would wish to destroy our nation, to destroy the nation Israel, and to uh, see Western civilization collapse. Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, protect this nation. And Father, for this church, this congregation, we pray that we might always keep before us the desire to grow to spiritual maturity, that we might press on to the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. One other brief announcement before we get started. This last week I got a missionary prayer letter from two of the young ladies from Jim Meyer's congregation in Ukraine who, after being trained there in his Bible Institute, have taken it upon themselves to go to be missionaries in Cairo, Egypt. Of course, this is quite dangerous and quite a challenge, and it's difficult for them to even get information out because uh, they want to talk about what they're doing in terms of ministry, and they can't do that while they're there, so they have to wait for somebody who leaves uh, Egypt and goes to either the U.S. or Ukraine before they can send out the email. Well, I have a two-page letter from them, and there's a stack down here on the front pew we'll put out on the table. There's two pages, and they're just it's just a stack. They're not attached to each other. They're just a two-page letter there, so if you're interested in finding out what they're doing, it's quite amusing, quite interesting as well. You can pick those up. They'll be out on the table in the foyer after class. Uh, Harold, would you make sure that takes place? Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. We began our study two or three weeks ago in the first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which is actually, as I pointed out, 
a subjective genitive. It is Jesus Christ's revelation or the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave him to show his bondservants, and that should be translated a little more accurately, to display to his slaves the things which must soon take place, or more correctly, the the events which must take place in rapid succession. This phrase, the things which must soon take place, is a phrase that is pregnant with significance. It is based on the Greek translation in Daniel chapter 2, where after seeing the vision, Nebuchadnezzar is seeking an interpreter. Daniel comes, and Daniel says, well, this is a dream which explains the things which must soon take place. Well, they haven't happened yet. So this idea of soon take place doesn't mean it's going to happen uh, in the near future, but that once these things begin to take place, they will take place in rapid succession. So... We have the phrase, the things which must uh, take place in rapid succession. And he, that is, the second he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, and New American Standard translates it, he sent and communicated it by his angel. Uh, This should be translated, he communicated it by sending it through his angel. The way it's translated is if there are two finite verbs. There are not two finite verbs here. The first verb is a, uh, the word translated sent is actually a participle. It's an adverbial participle of means. And the main verb is the verb semino translated communicate here, which is a good translation. But he communicated it by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. I'm emphasizing that concept of slave because at the instant of salvation, we all become bond slaves to Christ. Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 11 to the end of the chapter. We are now bond slaves to Christ, bond slaves to righteousness, even though we may not always act as if we are in obedience to our new master. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, we're introduced to the fact that there is this angelic involvement in the communication of Scripture. Now, that's not always evident to us, but apparently it is always true that even though you have God the Father or God the Holy Spirit communicating directly to a human being, or in this case, we have the Lord Jesus Christ communicating directly to John on the Isle of Patmos, there is also angelic involvement. And we see an indication or a parallel of this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And in Galatians 3:19, Paul is talking about the giving of the Mosaic law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And in Galatians 3:19, Paul says, "Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, if you look at that verse, you have to identify who the mediator is and who the seed is. Well, the seed is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the seed is not the same person as the mediator. We know that there is only one God and one mediator the Uh, between God and man, the Lord Christ Jesus. There's only one man and one mediator uh, between God and man, the Lord Christ Jesus. Uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 
And here, this is talking about the mediation at the time the law was given. So the mediator here in Galatians 3.19 is referring to Moses. So the angels, the law is given through angels by the agency of a mediator. Now, if you go back and you look at the Exodus account of the giving of the uh, Mosaic law on Mount Sinai, you will look in vain for any reference to angels. You see God writing with the finger of God the Ten Commandments on the, on the stone tablets. And he gives the law and reveals the whole law to Moses up on Mount Sinai. But there's no mention of angels. That doesn't mean they weren't there. It is that the writer of Exodus is not commenting on the presence of angels or their involvement in the giving of the law. But they were involved as witnesses to the giving of the law. This ties the whole thing into the angelic conflict. Now, this is crucial for our understanding of of things that will happen in the apocalypse. As we go through Revelation, we'll discover that 67 times the word angelos is used. Here it is in the Greek, angelos. This double gamma here is always translated as an NG or pronounced as an NG, angelos. And the root semantic meaning is messenger, which describes the basic role of these supernatural beings. But let's plug this into our understanding of two things that we've studied many times here, but they're not on the front of your mind. One is the ancient Near Eastern covenant uh, background. You had two different kinds of covenants in the Old Testament. One was called a royal grant covenant. The other was called a suzerain vassal treaty. Now, we covered this, or I explained them in detail, both in the Genesis series and in the Old Testament uh, introduction series. Uh, suzerain is spelled S-U-Z-E-R-A-I-N, and suzerain refers to a, a lord or a master or a king. Now, in the ancient world, in the Hittite Empire, uh, which flourished about the middle of the second millennium B.C., which is roughly the time uh, which the Mosaic Law was given, about 1400 B.C., 1440 B.C., this was a particular contract form that was a standard between a, a great king of an empire and subordinate uh, client nations or vassal states. And under this kind of a contract, the uh, great lord, the great king, would stipulate certain things that he would do for the benefit of this client nation, certain things he would do for the benefit of this uh, vassal state. And so it was called a suzerain-vassal treaty. And in the course of that treaty, there's a history of what the suzerain or the sovereign had done for the, for the vassal state. And that's what we have in Genesis and in essence, all of, all of the Pentateuch is written according to this format. You have this preamble, which is Genesis, which describes everything that God has done for Israel up to the point of the deliverance from Exodus. Then you have the stipulations of how the behavior of the vassals should be in relationship to the suzerain. That's the Mosaic Law. And then at the end of the treaty, there are stipulations as to what, what will happen if they're a good vassal and how the sovereign will additionally bless them if they're obedient to the treaty. 
and then there are there will be a list of curses or what the suzerain or great king would do to them if they were disobedient or unfaithful to their uh, sovereign king. And that's what we have in terms of the blessings and cursings at the end of Leviticus in Leviticus 26 and, and Deuteronomy 28 where God spells out the cycles of discipline for Israel and uh, as well as the blessings that will come to Israel And in that prophecy, there's a clear statement that they would go out of the land, that they would become so disobedient God would remove them from the land, but then there was the promise that God would ultimately restore them to the land. And it's on that basis, among many other passages, that we know there's a future future for Israel. So God gives the law, and just like in the ancient world when when the king would set forth this contract, this treaty with his vassal state, there would be members of the aristocracy, noblemen in the, in the court, who would witness this document. And so when God gives the Mosaic law to, to Israel and establishes this contractual legal basis for their relationship, there are covenant witnesses. And those covenant witnesses are the angels that are there through whom the law is given, according to Galatians 3.19. Now, all of this has to be plugged into our broader understanding of the angelic conflict. And we know that, I'm not going to go through the whole doctrine this morning, that Satan led a rebellion against God, that one-third of the angels were seduced by him, and they too rebelled against God. God convened a courtroom meeting, he sentenced the angels to eternity in the lake of fire, according to Matthew 25:41. but they're not there. question is, why aren't they there? And apparently Satan raised some sort of point of legal uh, debate and challenged God's sentence and said, well, God, how can you really be just in sending your creatures to such a horrific, horrible uh, penalty as eternity in the lake of fire? How can you do that? And so God is demonstrating his integrity in human history, and he's also demonstrating a number of other things. He's demonstrating that sin, no matter how innocuous it may appear to be, no matter how innocent, no matter how trivial, breaches the fabric of reality. I think that's the best way I can explain it right now. It is such a horrendous event that it affects everything in creation such that when Adam disobeyed God in the garden, not only did it cause the spiritual death of Adam and the woman and their separation from God, but it so corrupted their ability to procreate that this sin nature would be passed on to all of their descendants, but it also had reverberating consequences in all of creation. Both the physical world and the spiritual world are affected by their sin, so that Physical laws in the universe would change. For example, the first and second laws of thermodynamics uh, come into effect as a result of Adam's, Adam's sin. You have physical death, disease, suffering. You have botanical change. You have uh, zoological change in the animals who go from being vegetarians to meat eaters, and that changes their dental structure, changes their gastrointestinal system. All these things happen simply because Adam did something horrible. He ate a piece of fruit. 
No, he didn't commit mass murder. He wasn't a racist. He, um, he, he didn't get involved in some war on foreign soil. He didn't get involved in uh, some sort of, uh, of uh, religious uh, prejudice against uh, and, and telling other people that they couldn't worship uh, the way they wanted to. He didn't commit any of those social sins. He didn't smoke a cigarette. He didn't, uh, he didn't eat fatty food or he didn't eat carbohydrates or whatever the social sin is that everybody's down on right now. He just ate a piece of fruit, but he did it as an act of disobedience to God. And what God is showing is, no, is that no matter how innocuous that disobedience may seem to us in our own lives, it has incredible consequences that are unseen, unexpected by us. There are unintended consequences that are far greater than we can possibly imagine whenever the, cre- the creature operates independently from the Creator. And so there are certain things that God is teaching the angels by virtue of this experiment of human history. And we are the prime uh, elements in that experiment. He is demonstrating through human beings the importance of volition, responsibility, and what the consequences for sin are, as well as the consequences of obedience in terms of, of blessing. So all of this is part of this, this whole scenario. And we understand that human history is designed to teach this before the angels. So when we come to Revelation, what we're looking at here is God's explanation of, of how it is all going to be brought to a final conclusion. And, of course, in doing that, it is concluding what? The angelic conflict. It's being brought to a resolution. So we will see the angels participate in all of these events in ways that we've never seen them participate in human history before. Now, that doesn't mean they're not involved in in certain ways in nature, in weather or other factors like we see in Revelation it's just not revealed to us in Scripture. But it is as if the, the curtain is drawn back in Revelation and we're able to see what is going on behind the scenes in terms of the angelic revolt. And furthermore, I believe that by the midpoint of the tribulation, when Satan and the angels are permanently ejected from heaven, that they are cast down to the earth, that from that point on, The angels will be visible to the human race. The demons will be visible to the human race. Satan will be visible to the human race. And this will be a time that I think reflects uh, to some degree what it was like before the flood. I think perhaps uh, angels and demons were visible and manifest during the time between Adam and Noah. So it will be a bizarre time in human history by our standards because we don't see these things now. So throughout the book of Revelation, there's this emphasis on angels, 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 angels. Every time you turn around, there's an angel doing this or an angel doing that. And this is all part of understanding the angelic conflict and how it's going to come to an end. So we have an angel here in Revelation chapter 1 who is uh, the means, just as you have in Galatians 3.19, the means of communicating this this document, this revelation, it's a singular word, apocalypsis, and that indicates that it is one revelation. Even though it's comprised of seven visions, it is one revelation. Don't say the revelations of Jesus Christ. You see that frequently where somebody tries to uh, stick an S on the end of revelation, 
And there isn't one there. It is a singular. It is the revelation, Jesus Christ's revelation or disclosure or unveiling to John. He communicates it by means of an angel. But as we look at the first chapter of of Revelation, we also see in the latter part of the chapter that Jesus Christ physically appears before John. He, he is not simply off in heaven using an angel as some sort of intermediate. But if we look to uh, verse 12, John turns he to look at the voice that he hears, and he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And then he describes the appearance of the Lord. But it is the Lord who appears to him... And speaks to him in the second part of verse 17 down through the end of the chapter. So the Lord is speaking to him directly. Yet he is also mediating this this revelation through an angel. So there's angelic involvement. And it's very likely, I'm not going to be dogmatic on the point, but it's very likely that what we're seeing here is that just as you have angelic witnesses in the giving of the covenant, to the to Israel, you also have this involvement as as uh, with the angels as part of their uh, witnessing God's fulfillment of all of His covenant promises to Israel. Even though the church is involved at the beginning, God has also made certain promises to the church, and so the angels are, as we're told in many different passages in Scripture, the angels are looking and and intensely looking at what's going on in the church. So there's this, there's this angelic involvement. So God is communicating by means of an angel to his slave John. Now we have to ask the question, who, 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 who is this? Which John is this? We have John the Baptist. We have the Apostle John. We have... John Mark, who most of us refer to simply as Mark, the author of the uh, second gospel. And John was a common name in the ancient world. There are some who suggest that this might have even been another John who had a responsibility of leadership in the Ephesian church, and they referred to him as John the Elder. So we have to ask the question, which John is this? And on the basis of both external evidence, and by external evidence I mean historical uh, references. For example, you get into the second century, you read uh, the writings of the early church fathers, such as Papias, Polycarp, Irenaeus. These were men who lived during the second century who were church leaders who wrote quite a bit. They all record the fact that this was John the Apostle. John the Apostle. So what do we know about John the Apostle? Well, first of all, John was uh, the brother of James. They were called the sons of Zebedee and Jesus. And Mark 3.17 calls them the sons of thunder. Uh, the sons of thunder. And that reflects their personality. Apparently they were uh, a little short-tempered and they were quick to step to the defense of the Lord Jesus Christ to defend His honor and they operated on a bit of a short fuse, so he called them the sons of thunder. They were a family that was related to the high priest. They, was, uh, they were probably from some lower aristocracy or nobility in, uh, in uh, Judea. They lived in Galilee where their father Zebedee 
had developed a, a very successful commercial fishing business. So they were fairly wealthy. We know that they had servants in the home from several references made different places in Scripture. John, as a young man, seemed to be very positive to doctrine. We don't know how old he was, but some uh, some writings, for example, uh, say that he died during the uh, reign of Trajan. Trajan was Roman emperor from 98 to 115 A.D. So he lived to to into may perhaps lived into the next century. So he was. Uh, quite a bit younger than the other disciples, a bit younger than our Lord. And it's possible that he was uh, no more than 18 or 19 years of age when he was first called as a disciple. And let's just take for supposition that he was 19 years old. If our Lord began his ministry in 29 or 30 A.D., we can't be absolutely sure when it was, but let's take for sake of argument 29. If John was 19 years old in 29, uh, then that means that he was born about uh, A.D. 10. That means that in 95 A.D., when he writes uh, the gospel, or excuse me, when he writes the apocalypse, he's 85 years of age. So if he lived to the turn of the century, he lived to be 90. If he lived much beyond that, he lived into his early 90s, which uh, fits the tradition of the early church. So he is an older uh, man who has had tremendous experience, and he has lived uh, perhaps uh, almost 70 years, 65 to 70 years beyond uh, the death of our Lord. So he has seen all of the other apostles uh, go to be with the Lord. He is the last living apostle by the time that he uh, writes Revelation. When he was a disciple... He began his uh, with an interest in John the Baptist, and he was a follower of John the Baptist and a student of John the Baptist. When Jesus came to be baptized by John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, and when John uh, learns from John the Baptist that Jesus is the Messiah, then he leaves John the Baptist and begins to follow our Lord. So we see a high level of positive volition. He is not unfamiliar with our Lord, apparently. If you compare several verses in Scripture, it appears that John was a first cousin of the Lord. For example, in Matthew 27:56, you have to put three verses together to figure this out. Matthew 27:56, we're told that among those who, uh, among them was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So there are uh, three women mentioned here, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So this is the, the mother of James and John, this third individual. Then if we compare that to its parallel passage in Mark 15:40, we see uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph. That's the alternate spelling for Joseph. And Salome. Okay, you have three women. One's called the mother of the sons of Zebedee in one verse. In the other verse, she's called Salome. So that's got to be the same person. So the mother of the sons of Zebedee is Salome. 
Then you compare that with John 19.25. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. Okay, that's the first Mary. His mother's sister. We don't have a name for her. Mary, the wife of Clopas. Well, that wouldn't be the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, would it? So that excludes her. And Mary Magdalene. So in the other two verses, we have three people mentioned, Salome and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And in this passage, that other person that's mentioned but unnamed is his mother's sister. So when you put these passages together, you discover that Salome, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, is Mary's sister. That makes James and John Jesus' first cousin. And remember, John the Baptist is a cousin on the other side of the, uh, uh, related to his mother's cousin, Elizabeth. So what we have here is a real family affair going on. So James and John follow the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord calls them as disciples. And among the disciples, James and uh, John as well as Peter, are the closest disciples to Jesus. They're the ones who are often singled out for special attention. For example, in Matthew 17, verse 1, James and Peter and John are the three who witness the transfiguration, the glory of the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is with James and Peter, that is, John is with James and Peter, when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark 5.37. John again is with James and Peter when Jesus prays in Gethsemane and the Lord says, stand and watch, and they all fall asleep, including John. Furthermore, he and Peter had responsibility for preparing the last Passover, so even though he was the youngest of the disciples, he had a marked level of maturity and responsibility uh, for the Lord to give him such task. And then we we know that he was referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't love the others, but he was particularly singled out for a reference to Jesus' love. So he was especially devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Following the resurrection, John stayed in Jerusalem. By the way, John is the only one of the disciples that didn't desert Jesus. He, is, he stays with Jesus, and he is the only disciple at the foot of the cross. So Jesus says to John, to, uh, in reference to Mary, John, behold your mother. He gives John responsibility for taking care of his mother. It's interesting. He doesn't give that responsibility to any of his other brothers. And he doesn't give that responsibility to, to anyone else. He gives the responsibility to John, again indicating that John must have had a high degree of maturity and a heightened sense of responsibility. And the Lord specifically uh, cared for him and had a particular uh, rapport with John. Following the resurrection, we learn little about John. He's uh, not mentioned very much in the book of Acts. Galatians 2, 9, Peter, James, and John are referred to by Paul as the pillars of the church. Now, there is a very minor tradition that John was martyred when he was a 
uh, a young man at the same time of his brother. His brother James, as a leader of the church, was thrown into uh, prison and was beheaded by, by uh, Herod. But uh, John survived. There is a reference in the 5th century by one particular writer who claims to be quoting Papias that John died at the same time as James. However, this particular writer is not very trustworthy, and no one's been able to find this reference anywhere in Papias, so it is uh, doubted that John died as a young man. Most early church tradition says that he moved to Ephesus about the time of the Jewish rebellion, and it was before Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, Polycrates, who was the bishop of Ephesus in 190 A.D., records that John died in Ephesus. This is also supported by Irenaeus, who flourished between the period of 150 and 200 A.D., and he says that John lived until the days of Trajan. You have others, such as Polycarp and Papias, were disciples or students of John. So there is strong historical evidence, or what we refer to as external evidence, that is evidence outside the Bible, that John the Apostle is the author of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Now, we'll get into some more details on that when we have to discuss the timing of the writing. We won't do that this morning, but that's important. And it's important because if it's written, as some allege, much earlier, then, it, and some want to claim that it was written before the fall of Jerusalem, then that, you know, they, they uh, assume that that strengthens their case for a preterist position in uh, interpreting uh, Revelation. It doesn't. It doesn't matter when it was written. It doesn't have a preterist interpretation. But if it is clearly written in 95 A.D. by the, by the Apostle John, then that destroys the preterist position. And we'll get into the dating issues a little later on in our study of the first chapter. But John, the author of Revelation, identifies himself as John in uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 and in 1-9. Tradition supports uh, his identification. Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, many others identify John the Apostle as the author of Revelation. While some people object because there's a lot of vocabulary differences between John, uh, the Gospel of John, and the Epistle of John, they'll say he doesn't write the same way. Well, that's because the, the material is different. The subject matter is different. I mean, if I were to write a work of fiction, let's say something I tried once was to write a Western novel, and if I were to write a Western novel, it wouldn't have any of the vocabulary in it that I used in my book on spiritual warfare. So just because the vocabulary seems to be different or the style seems to be different doesn't mean it's written by somebody else. It's just a different kind of literature. However, there are a large number of words that are used in both the the Gospel of John and the Revelation that are only used by John or used with him with a particular emphasis, and we'll look at one of those as we go through our study this morning. So external evidence as well as internal evidence supports the Apostle John as the writer of the Apocalypse, the one to whom Jesus revealed and disclosed the events that must shortly take place. So we're told that Jesus uh, communicated by sending his angel 
to his slave John, and this is the Apostle John. Then when we look at verse 2, we read that uh, we have a relative clause describing this particular John. This is the John who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, this is a strong verse. We have to look at this verse and the next one in connection because in these first three verses we have a powerful doctrine that is embedded in these verses, and what I'll refer to now is simply the doctrine of language, the doctrine of communication, which is the bedrock to understanding how the book should be interpreted. John describes himself as the one who testified to the Word of God. And the word translated testified is the aorist active uh, subjunctive of, uh, or it should be aorist active participle of martyreo. It's the aorist active participle of martyreo. Excuse me, I'm wrong. I'm right on the overhead. The aorist active subjunctive, third person singular, of martyreo. He testified to the word of God. And this word martyreo means to be a legal witness in court, to testify, to provide legal testimony. So he testified to the word of God. And this word martyreo is one that is used many times in the Gospel of John and other Johannine writings. For example, the verb here, martyreo, is used 32 times in the Gospel. The noun form, which we also see in this verse that's translated by the word, the noun testimony, which is the noun martyria, which also means a testimony, a witness, a legal record or document. A testimony is used, or that noun is used 14 times in the Gospel of John. Now, when you look at that, what one realizes is that the Gospel of John presents a legal case for Jesus being the Messiah. That was part of the purpose, that these signs, remember we studied that, these signs are to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. These are written that you might believe, and that these there refers to the signs. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So John in the Gospel marshals all these witnesses, all of this evidence, in order to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. So he is the one who testified. So this clearly is a word associated with the Apostle John. He testified to the Word of God. Not only is the word used frequently in the Gospel of John, but in 1 John the verb is used six times. The noun is also used six times. The verb is used four times in 3 John, and the noun is used one time. And then we come to Revelation. The noun is used four times. Excuse me. The verb is used four times in Revelation, and the noun is used nine times in Revelation. So this is one of those words that is frequently used in both Revelation and John, and it indicates that the apostle is the one who wrote all of these all of these documents. Now the uh, testimony here, or his witness, his legal witness is to the Word of God. And this is the phrase in the Greek, tonlagon to theu. And the word that is translated, uh, the word, is the Greek word logos. 
This is the same word that we have in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the first thing that hits us is that we remember that this is a title, Lagos, is a title for the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is not the reference here. Lagos means Word. That's its core meaning. As such, it also has the idea of thought or thinking because what goes, goes behind or what lies behind a spoken word is a thought. You can't think without words. Your thoughts are formed by words. Try to think of something without a word. Can't do it. Now, you may picture something. You may conjure up in your mind's eye a, a picture or an image, but that doesn't, you can't communicate that unless you have words. So your ability to communicate is dependent upon your vocabulary. If you only have two words, you can't say very much. If you have 200 words, you can say a little more, but you can't say it very precisely. If you have a vocabulary of ten or 15,000 words, then you can actually communicate to other people and speak very precisely about your subject matter, and you can think precisely. This is why it's important to develop your vocabulary and your biblical vocabulary is so that you can think accurately and precisely about God. Well, the, the word lagos has at its core meaning the idea of communication, thought that is formed and then is verbally expressed in terms of communication. And here we have it linked by a genitive phrase to God. This is the word which derives from God. Now, this is not a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though that comes to your mind. That is not what is being said here. And the reason I can say that is because this phrase is only used in, in the Apostle John, by the Apostle John one time, and that is by our Lord in John 10.35, where he is referring to the Scriptures by the phrase, the Word of God. It's also used in 1 John chapter uh, 2, verse 14, but again as a reference to the Scripture, the Word of God. So it is not a, a reference or even an allusion to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a witness or testimony to the Word of God that is the Scripture. John uses this phrase several times in Revelation. In Revelation 1.9 he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God. In other words, he is being persecuted because of his stand on the word of God, because his communication of God's message, we can say. You know, whenever you use the Word of God, there's a tendency to become a little vague. It's so familiar, but this is the message of God, what God is communication, communicating, the communication of God. So that is why John is being persecuted. Again, we have the phrase in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God. You see, there's those who are, will be martyred because of their stand for the truth of the Word of God. Every time I read this verse, I'm reminded about the early days of the church. 
a lot of questions arise in people's minds about how we know what is the Bible and what books weren't the Bible. Well, what about all these other books that people claim were Gospels or other writings, books like the Gnostic Gospels, which are receiving a lot of press right now? In the early church, because of persecution, they were forced to, to decide what was the Bible. I mean, there were some good books that were written by church leaders who have a lot of truth in them. For example, one of the books that was frequently read in churches in the early church was called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve. Another uh, devotional work was called the Shepherd uh, of Hermas. Now, there were some accurate things there, but all of a sudden there's a knock on your door. There's some Roman soldiers, and they're going to search your house. And if you're found possessing a copy of the Scriptures then you will be taken to the Colosseum and thrown to the wild animals. Okay, are you going to do that for the shepherd of Hermas? You want to make sure that if you're going to die, you're going to die for the Word of God, not for just some good book. So it wasn't long before they had to make a decision as to what is going to be in the Scripture and what isn't. And this is the same thing in Revelation 6-9. They will be martyred for possessing the Bible, possessing the Word of God, and for their stand for the Word of God. And notice again, they're slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. That's that same word that we have in Revelation 1-2, martyria, that testimony, that legal witness which they held. Revelation 17-17, we find the phrase again, this time it's in the plural, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the words of God here is a reference to the prophecy related to the end times. So again, it is related to Scripture. Then we have Revelation 19.13, the only time where the phrase the word of God specifically relates to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lagos alone refers to him in John 1. But here we have the full phrase, uh, the Lagos Tutheu. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So this is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as he returns at the second coming. And then in Revelation chapter 20 we read, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Again, we have those who were martyred because of their devotion, application, and utilization of Bible doctrine contained in the Bible, the word of God. So back at uh, Revelation 1-2, John is the one who testified. He gave legal witness to the word of God, that is the scriptures, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And here we have a, an objective genitive testimony about Jesus Christ. This is what the Gospel of John was. It was a testimony about Jesus Christ. And the last word is the word here, he saw, which is the one that's up here on the overhead. It's the Greek word, adon, which is the second aorist uh, form of horao, which means to see. And it has to do with uh, presenting a vision and what he saw in his vision. And we have this word used 56 times in the book of Revelation. 
He is seeing what is going to transpire at the end time, so he is recording that which he saw as a legal document, as a legal witness to what will take place at the end times. John 19.35. John gave specific reference. He is the one who has seen, and he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you all must believe. He is giving accurate testimony. This was a major theme in the Gospel of John. Now, for a testimony to be valid, it has to be understandable, right? You have to know what it says. It can only have one meaning. What good is it if you're having a court case and you get a witness on the stand and he says something, but it is so vague that it could be interpreted many different ways. Of course, we've seen that happen in a few court cases where you can easily see how the uh, adversarial uh, counselor for the defense attorney may take a prosecutor's witness and then twist their words and try to make them mean something other than what they said in order for their client to get off. And this is what happens so often with human viewpoint or paganism, there is this, this attempt to distort language so that it doesn't mean what the author, what the speaker intended when he uh, made the statement. So we have this same kind of thing going on in Revelation. Now, let's skip down to verse 3. Revelation 1.3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and heed the things which are written in it. Now this initial word blessing is the Greek word makarios, which means to be happy, to be tranquil, to be content, privileged. But mostly the idea is to emphasize someone who is a favored recipient of divine grace. That's what blessing is. It so often we get the idea that it has something to do with material, physical blessing, that it has something to do with, with um, favorable circumstances. But what it has to do with is that we are the recipient of divine favor. There are seven blessings given in Revelation. We'll go through each of them right now. I'll just list them for you. Revelation 1.3, Revelation 14.13, Revelation 16.15, Revelation 19, 9, Revelation 20, verse 6, Revelation 22, 7, and 22, 14. Seven blessings. And there is a, the blessing here is for the one who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and who heed the things which are written in it. The word for he who reads, you have basically three participles here three articular participles. And as we go through Revelation, I'm going to point out the fact that there are groups of threes and groups of sevens all through Revelation. This is our first triad, our first list of three. He who reads, he who hears, and he who heeds. So he who reads is anagonosko. This is not privately reading the Scripture. This is the public reading of Scripture or what happened in the ancient world when they would receive an epistle from Paul or John or James. They would stand up in the pulpit and read it. Today we exegete it. We teach the Word. So this is talking about a blessing for the per person who teaches the book of Revelation, but also for the one who hears. Not, this isn't just having your uh, eardrum stimulated. 
This is, have, this is listening, paying attention to, and understanding the words of the prophecy. So there's a special blessing to the pastor who teaches and the congregation who listens. How about that? And it goes beyond that to those who heed the things that are written in it. Now, I'm going to come back and talk about a few things related to this. But one thing we need to see here is that all through this first, these first three verses, we have something that God intends to communicate to us. What's embedded here is a theory, not really a theory, but what's embedded here is a doctrine of language. You see, God is communicating. Look at the words that are used here. It's called an unveiling or a disclosure. This is an apocalypsis. God is unveiling or disclosing something to us. He's not hiding something. He's bringing it out into the light. He's bringing us light, not darkness. He's unveiling something. He's not veiling something. This is not to be something mysterious or difficult to understand, but something that is to be uh, clear, something that is to be understood. It's written to show something, to display something, according to verse 1. It's communication, semino. It is written to communicate something. It's called the word or the message or the language of God. It's a testimony or a legal witness. It's designed to be a blessing if it's taught and understood and applied. So if it's a mystery, how to understand it and apply it, and if it's difficult to understand it and apply it, how can it be a blessing? See, the assumption in all three verses is that this is written to be understood. This is written to communicate specifics about end-time events, specifics about uh, specific principles we'll see in the Christian life in chapters 2 and chapter 3, and it's written to be specifically understood so that you can have this blessing. We live in an age, though, when the very language, uh, ability to understand language is being challenged. Under postmodernism, we have the, this whole idea that you can't really understand what people are trying to say. And we'll come back and talk about that next time because this is fundamental to understanding the whole principle of interpretation and how to understand uh, the book of Revelation. So what we've been able to do this morning is simply set this up by looking at the key words that relate to communication. And next time we'll come back and we'll talk about communication. We'll talk about language and how the Bible gives us a doctrine of language and meaning which must be foundational to any uh, system of interpretation or hermeneutics with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word because you have revealed something to us to be understood. This is not supposed to be guesswork. You, are who, you, the God who is omniscient and omnipotent, you are capable of giving us your word so that we can understand it. The reason we don't understand it is because in our sin nature we want to reject these things, rationalize these things. In unbelief, we, we don't want to listen. We don't want to learn and we don't want to apply. But, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their uh, eternal destiny, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. Salvation is not based on who you are. It's not based on your works. It's not based on what you've done. It's based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So right now, right where you sit, all you need to do is believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you have eternal life. 
Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study, that we would be uh, challenged, encouraged, motivated to press on to spiritual maturity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.